Welcome to Fossils and Fiction, a podcast exploring cultural and scientific ideas about dinosaurs. My guest on this episode is Dr. Ross Garner, a lecturer in media and cultural studies in the School of Journalism, Media and Culture at Cardiff University in the United Kingdom. Ross has expertise on media tourism and dinosaur fandom. He joins me for a fascinating discussion about Jurassic Park and a number of other topics. Dr. Ross Garner, welcome to Fossils and Fiction. Thank you, Travis. Lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. No problem at all. I really wanted to talk to you because I've seen about some of your work on uh, Jurassic Park, on films, on dinosaur fandoms, and so ahead of Jurassic World Dominion, I thought we could have a bit of a chat about the impact of Jurassic Park on film, the legacy of Jurassic Park. So I know you're a researcher interested in dinosaur fandom. Could you tell me about that idea? Yeah, it's um, it's something that uh, has just been playing around in in the back of my mind for um a few years now um it came out of a conversation that i had with uh, some colleagues um at a conference once when we were talking about areas of studying or studying kind of audiences and fandom and audience consumption and media and, and areas that were overlooked and i just i've always had an interest in prehistoric in dinosaurs natural history um since i was a young kid um part of which dates back to jurassic park and so that then the term kind of dino enthused uh dinosaur fandom um just kind of started kicking around in my head and the more i started thinking about it the more there seemed to be a some traction within it as well um and that there didn't really seem to be very much work in terms of like audience and fan consumption habits that paid attention to areas of what are kind of like factual um fan objects you know there's a lot of work around fictional franchises um and the way that audiences move across those um various other kind of aspects of commercial popular culture but in terms of areas like more factual things or uh you know things like dinosaurs that cross over between various forms of media uh, and into other areas of, of culture like museums there, there didn't really seem to be much research so my interest in dinosaur fandom is looking at it in terms of cross-generational appeal um, because dinosaurs obviously remain objects of fascination to kids but that also does extend into adults as well and and later periods of people's lives albeit with certain stigmas attached to it that you know tend to come around fandom as well in terms of things like stunted growth and haven't you kind of got over dinosaurs yet Mm. you know if you're 20 30 40 and beyond um but it's also kind of allowing me to kind of cast a, a much bigger net in terms of looking at where examples of dinosaur fandom come out so you know rather than it just being linked to media consumption um you also look at things and i've done some research into how audiences consume natural history exhibits uh we had the the big dippy uh on tour um 
uh, exhibit, which was the, the famous skeleton cast from uh, the Natural History Museum that's usually in the main foyer there. It toured around the UK, uh, went to a number of cities, including coming to Cardiff, and, and I spent some time at the museum looking at how visitors to that attraction specifically uh, interacted with it, um, you know, what they did whilst they were there, um, and how we could possibly see aspects of, of dinosaur fandom manifest themselves within those kind of museum spaces um yeah i think that's really interesting because you've got uh multiple touch points outside of films right out, out, as you say outside of fiction the, the things that everybody think about jurassic park of course uh these touch points which are cultural institutions where people can access dinosaurs uh yeah. and they, they're kind of attached to the idea of dinosaurs or perhaps particular dinosaurs uh, and they, they enact that fandom in sites that maybe fan researchers don't often look at. Yeah, yeah. Or they, they certainly kind of mutate and enhance um, areas that fans have, have looked at. So one of the things that I'm, I'm really interested in is kind of spaces of audience uh, consumption. Um, and doing the dinosaur fandom research allows you to look at things like museums, which, you know, don't typically get spoken about unless again it's it's museum exhibits linked to particular intellectual properties like star trek um and it's links to science or that there's a new doctor who um museum um which is about doctor who and science which is which is opened in liverpool in the uk so it allows us to think about those and, and i'm really interested as well about looking at some of the other kind of experiences that are on offer like uh, in denver you can go and do a day's dinosaur digging basically it's, it's like a tourist attraction uh that you'll get picked up from your hotel and taken to a dig site and you can kind of help out for the day um you know actually kind of being a paleontologist yeah, uh, yeah. which i think is is a wonderful thing i'm really interested to to get to know more about that as um something that you know it, it's not there in terms of like traditional media fandom i interviewed um a staff member from the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum in Winton, Queensland, and they have a similar program, although I think you go for a full week, but you go out onto a dig site, uh, you, you pay, but you go out and do the work of a paleontologist, uh, you know, and, and effectively they get people who just come out and do this as kind of their holiday for the year. Um, so it's it's a really interesting thought about these, these spaces of uh, non-traditional fandom, and I guess you've also got touch points like toys and things as well you know kids grow up with these these physical objects which again we might not often associate with fandom yeah yeah i mean fandom is uh, there's been a long history of fandom um and collector cultures that that go around that and certainly dinosaurs feed into that but what's kind of interesting about especially about a franchise like jurassic park is how that's adapted to um the the demands of kind of toys and merchandising from there um because i remember uh, just from a kind of personal anecdote but it's amazing how this kind of resonates with other fans i've spoken to um when the first jurassic park came out in in 93 of course there was the merchandise and there were toys including uh model dinosaurs uh in the film that were there um but i I was round about the age when it was like oh come on you shouldn't really be playing with toys or buying toys anymore um 
and also my parents like objected to uh buying these jurassic park toys because basically they were toy dinosaurs and you could you know pick up a toy dinosaur for a, a very inexpensive amount just a plastic dinosaur somewhere else whereas the jurassic park ones were selling at much more inflated price points that were there and the reason that they were doing that was they had the little jp93 yep. logo on them so they were branded as jurassic park dinosaurs rather than you know generic dinosaurs that you could get in a in a toy shop for for a few i would say pounds yeah back in, yeah back in the early 90s i think that was still the case um and it's interesting how, as Jurassic Park as a franchise has progressed, it has tried or it's necessitated di- differentiating itself by including these increasingly branded dinosaurs that, you know, mean the parents aren't just buying or, or collectors aren't just buying their, um, you know, generic di- replications, dinosaurs in, in branded packaging. Uh, you know, things like Blue as this kind of almost celebrity velociraptor that's yeah. there yeah. is a completely, you know, unique intellectual property that can be copyrighted and, and you know, parents aren't just buying a generic velociraptor they, the kids want blue specifically of it and you see that with with the, the increasingly kind of mad science ones in jurassic world like the indominus rex and the indoraptor and you know i I'm shuddering a little bit about whatever the atrociraptor is in uh, <laughs> in dominion because uh, it seems to be again this kind of like mad science genetic engineering um aspect to it but you you really do see this kind of like branding of of specific dinosaurs or dinosaurs as almost celebrities in the case of blue um that are yeah brought in I, I think that's really right because you look at the first jurassic park and although it had uh sort of iconic dinosaurs the, the dilophosaurus the velociraptor the um the tyrannosaurus rex it was left to fans to to come up with a name for those um, those dinosaurs, right? And so then the Rex became Rexy. Uh, yeah. But but by the time you get to Jurassic World, uh, you get, as you say, Blue. You get this named dinosaur that everybody can grab hold of, and you get the Indominus Rex, which is a, a dinosaur that nobody's got on the shelf except Jurassic World uh, yep. as a brand. And then the Indoraptor in, in, in Fallen Kingdom as well. I think that's really interesting. And of course, um, uh, Camp Cretaceous, uh, you know, it's taken that to the nth degree with uh, by naming more and more of the dinosaurs. You've got the Bumpy, the Ang- Blue Ankylosaurus, right? Yeah. Uh, you've got Pierce, the Kentrosaurus, and they're all named. They're all given these names and these personifications, so they become characters, which uh, which really feeds into that that uh, marketization of the films, I guess, even more so than than ever before. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, Bumpy's a really good example of um, the, this kind of turn towards cuteness that Star Wars has, you know, absolutely yeah. mastered with, with the kind of Baby Yoda thing. The idea about kind of opening up the appeal of the franchise through having this kind of like hyper cute um, character that sells to to children but also kind of extends beyond to kind of like uh more more feminized tastes as well um and i think i I wouldn't be surprised if they're going to do this with uh blues baby within uh dominion as well um it's yeah it seems to be very much i was in a i was in a lego (laughs) store the other day and uh uh, one of the sets i just had to buy was was blue and beta (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, <laughs> in, in, in Lego. So um, yeah, that's how it, that's how it is. 
uh, yeah, it absolutely yeah. works. I, I, I want to circle back just briefly to museums. Um, you were talking about museums and their sort of strategies for audience engagement, but you were looking at that, uh, how are people engaging with the museum? How does the museum engage with people? How do they do audience development? Do you think they focus on that in the same way that we might think about it for media properties usually, or do they do something different? Um, it depends. Um, I think I think museums could do a lot more in terms of kind of recognising audience enthusiasms uh, towards dinosaurs. I, th- I think museums do a lot of work in terms of, or, or just expect that the, the skeletons themselves are spectacular enough to uh, warrant um, interest from people and and i think there's also something about the type of gazing that museums encourage you know they encourage a a more kind of scientific gaze towards things that you have the kind of cool detached appreciation from things and you inspect the specimen at your own pace whether that's just looking at it uh for a period of time or whether it's kind of touring around um taking photos of things from different angles different aspects of uh the the physiology of 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 the specimen that's there um but i did an interesting example i've been to the field museum in chicago uh where sue the you know the big t-rex skeleton is is held and that's a really interesting example of i think how you can start to maybe build in different approaches to things um i mean sue itself is another example of these kind of branded dinosaurs celebrity dinosaurs uh that you get nowadays um uh, and the lanyard i'm wearing is kind of <laughs> got kind of sue's logo on it and and everything um but that that sue is completely bracketed off from the other exhibits within the kind of natural history area um and the other kind of dinosaur fossils and skeletons that are there um and you walk through it in a way that suggests you are moving into uh, a different space but also it's kind of constructed as though you're moving back in time to encounter Sue within their natural habitat Uh, and it's very important to use they because that's their their pronoun as they say on Twitter Um, I was going to mention the Twitter account I was going to mention I was going to say Sue has a Twitter account is that account run by the museum or is that a sort of fan run account do you know no, no. I, I, from what I gather, it's all completely done by yeah, the great. museum because it's got um, a really distinctive a... voice for a museum Twitter account. Then, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's very outspoken about a variety of things, and, and it does treat Sue as though Sue is a, an alive dinosaur nowadays. It's negotiating some of the other um, bits of bobs uh, and issues that face us, especially uh, things related to kind of climate change and. Uh, things like that which in some ways is unsurprising given you know there's there's some arguments that are out there that dinosaurs culturally appeal because they were these huge creatures that became extinct um and you know in comparison humanity is now the kind of equivalent dominant species on the planet and has managed to survive albeit you know whether that's the case moving forward uh, we shall see over the next few years um so yeah, it, 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 the, going back to the Twitter account of Sue, yes, it, it, it's fascinating the way it's run and, and the way it, it works to kind of develop this particular brand that they have of Sue and this personality that they attach to Sue um, about, you know, they have favourite things in the world, which are Ham and Jeff Goldblum, for example. <laughs> and, um, 
yeah, very, very fascinating. Um, yeah, oh. I'm just, I've just gone to this Twitter account, which I already, of course, follow. But uh, you know, the, the the top account is uh, uh, the top tweet is at the moment. Uh, Every bisexual person has one of these four outfits in their weekly rotation, and it's uh, an image of Alan Grant, Ellie Sattler, uh, and the kids, <laughs> and the kids from Jurassic Park. You know, and it, but again, that that language is 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 really extraordinary. And you're right; I think it is run by by the Field Museum because they have a blog which refers back to the Twitter accounts. So there you go. Yes. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to get that social media person on maybe for an for an interview at some point. That'd be fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I, I would love to speak to them myself. So yeah, if you do manage that, that'd be a that'd be a fantastic. I, I wonder if um, I'll be thing. talking to Sue the T Rex or you know the such and such <laughs> social media manager. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> or if they could do it in character, then that would be even better. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to put a voice filter or something on. Um, I didn't. I didn't expect to be to be chatting about Sue in a in a sort of interview that I build as as a t- discussing the legacy of Jurassic Park. But here we are, um, uh, media, media researchers. We can go anywhere. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, take, taking things back to Jurassic Park. I mean, Sue is absolutely indicative of um, the popularity of the T Rex. Exactly, and you know, T Rex remain or Rexy, as you as you rightly name them. Um, it has been the star of Jurassic Park for a number of ways. As some of the research that I've done into fans of Jurassic Park, you know, the T Rex always comes out as uh, the favourite dinosaur yep. that's there for a variety of reasons. That you know, it, it it's never really the, the antagonist or just the antagonist um you know in some ways it comes to save uh the pseudo family at the end of the first jurassic park i love the end of jurassic world where it kind of goes out onto the helipad and roars and you know the connotations of the yeah this is my kingdom now (laughs) and and even at the end of fall of kingdom it walks up onto a kind of rock at at a city zoo and roars at a lion which is you know, it's uh, the paleontologists. I'm sure shake their head at that kind of roaring and that kind of display because, but uh, but it's become such an iconic uh, part of the film, or part of that film franchise. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And a lot of the fans say, you know, it's there in the logo um, for it. You know, the T Rex is kind of in some ways the unofficial mascot of the Jurassic Park franchise and has been positioned that way uh, from the start and. So yeah, we'll we'll have to see what happens to uh, to Rexy in Dominion. You've also taken a look at the relationship between Doctor Who and the Mesozoic in some of your work. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's a chapter that is in um, an edited collection called Doctor Who and Science. Um, just to give it a brief plug. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very good collection. Just, just um, to stay on the dinosaur, I talk about Doctor Who, but we, just, we should stay on the dinosaur topic as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but it, it looks at the way that dinosaurs have been used within um, TV Doctor Who um, and it casts uh, a broad focus the chapter it, it looks at both kind of what's referred to as classic Who um, so between 63 and 89 um, and then kind of new Who as well since it came back in 2005 um, and it looks at the way that 
dinosaurs, considering them as kind of like giant lizards, um, came through. So it's not looking at kind of like the more kind of humanoid Mesozoic monsters like the Silurians specifically. It's looking at when dinosaurs specifically pop up or things that uh, might be viewed as kind of like commentative dinosaurs as well so um uh, there's a creature called the murka in one series uh, one serial there's another one called the scarison which is equivalent to the Loch Ness monster in in another one which is a cyborg um but i include them in the sample as well to kind of look at what um the way in which uh, dinosaurs as giant lizards have been betrayed. Um, and it's interesting because it, it means looking at some stories and certainly some elements of stories from the past which are less revered by fan canons. Um, you know, the, the dinosaurs in Doctor Who, they, they're very much kind of televisual rather than film. So they're perhaps less successful in terms of their realization. Uh, there was an, an ambitious story in the 1970s called Invasion of the Dinosaurs, uh, which featured uh, some, yes, puppet dinosaurs, claymation dinosaurs that are perhaps less than successful on the budget of 1970s BBC TV. Um, I don't know if anybody, uh, if, if in the US, uh, sorry, in Australia, you got um, the Chewitz campaign that featured like a plastic dinosaur. Um, go, it was like a plastic version of Godzilla going <laughs> off the rampage. It doesn't really build, but uh, after... No. <laughs> But it, it's kind of of that standard. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's allowing us to kind of reevaluate some of the less revered uh, instances of special effects in Doctor Who. But one of the one of the arguments I put through there is that actually there's a number of different codings or genre codings of dinosaurs that take place within the show. Yes, they're used as examples of monstrosity uh, and, um, you know, threats that need to be dealt with in some way shape or form but there's also quite an emphasis on melodrama in relation to them that the dinosaurs are used as kind of uh it's always quite pitiful objects as well and things that should be expressed sympathy towards um as well as kind of monstrosity um and a lot of that comes as a result of uh the figure of the doctor being a kind of a, a, an alien or an outsider um, and this kind of complicates some of the ideas that we have about uh, dinosaurs dinosaurs are frequently used in narratives as threats that allow humanity to kind of demonstrate its superiority to previous alpha species on earth this is i always find this is quite a controversial argument to make because um I remember seeing something recently where there were kind of right-wing conservatives saying that, you know, dinosaurs appeal because they're not political. Um, and it's like, yeah, they are. They're, they, they are used for inherently they, political they a, purposes. They have a cultural role, of course it's political. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, so dinosaurs are often used as these kind of threats of, of these giant creatures that once were the dominant species on Earth, but humanity kind of demonstrates its superiority and its rightfulness or rightful nature um, as the current dominant species on the planet by overcoming the, the re-emergence of dinosaurs. But Doctor Who 
complicates that because the doctor's this kind of alien outsider figure who often sympathizes as much with the dinosaurs and, and you know doesn't think they should be completely eradicated or destroyed or you know overcome he, he's much more that you know if you can send them back to their own time uh then that should be the case or you know if that's not the case they have a right to live and exist a peaceful existence as much as humanity does um so they're used for these kind of melodramatic purposes um, and to make those particular points within the show. And then as we get into the new series, uh, we get another coding of the dinosaur where they use much more as spectacle. They, they are set up as kind of spectacular, um, albeit perhaps limited in terms of their aesthetic appearance in the, in the classic show. But they use very much as spectacle and for publicity reasons in the new series. Um, that can be in terms of like high concept uh, naming of episodes. So there was one called Dinosaurs on a Spaceship, which was, you know, blatantly using that kind of hook to, to immediately get people in um, when actually the story was about something a little bit different. Um, or what was it? When Peter Capaldi's Doctor launched, there was um, frequently used in trailers and press images uh, a giant T Rex rampaging through Victorian London, which plays on the kind of an Anachronistic nature that Doctor Who likes to use, but this was, you know, set up as what the first episode was going to be. When actually the T Rex was seen in the kind of teaser sequence before the titles, and, and that was about it. Really, you heard it in the background a couple of times, and then it disappears without providing any spoilers for anybody who might want to go and watch that. So, Doctor Who used uh, or knew who has certainly used dinosaurs much more for examples of kind of spectacle and publicity uh, as well as some of those other things like um melodrama you know there's there's quite a strong emphasis in the in the dinosaurs on a spaceship one about certain dinosaurs being kind of victims and that they need to be protected by humanity and, and as pets basically which is which is quite a common coding that you get of dinosaurs in in pop culture as well even circling back to Jurassic Park, uh, throughout the series we've seen a lot of those those same themes circling around. You know, Fallen Kingdom was all about the, the, this sort of um, uh, debate about uh, should we save the dinosaurs from the volcano or should we should we let them die? And now, now in Dominion, they're, they're out in the world and they're kind of everywhere. Uh, you, you know, um, it, that question of will humanity sort of reassert itself as the dominant species on the planet. Uh, or, or will we, as Jeff Goldblum sort of intones in the uh, in some of the trailers, will will we? You know, we, I think he says we're not only um, uh, subservient to nature or something, you know, but we we, we might actually go extinct here. So uh, mm. I, I can't I can't uh, I, I can't replicate that as well as Goldblum. <laughs> <laughs> We're not, no, only no la- yeah. we're not only lack dominion over nature, we're subservient to it, is, is what he says. Yes, yeah, class- yes, in, in that irrepressible form that um, Jeff Goldblum can deliver those yeah. kind of lines. And I, I was but, thinking yeah. as you were talking earlier about, uh, about Jurassic Park toys, just to circle back again, you were talking about Jurassic Park toys and there's a great line where, where Goldblum... Um, foreshadows exactly that thing occurring in Jurassic Park when he says, you know, you you, you you painted it and you slap your label on it and you put it out there in the world before you even thought about what, you, what you've done. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You, you stuck it on a lunchbox. Yeah, and he banged <laughs> the desk yeah. in a very sort of angry way. Um, it's very, very enthusiastic that- about delivering the point. Yeah, and that does allude to one, again, circling back to some of those things about the impact of Jurassic Park and maybe why it's endured where other kind of dinosaur movies haven't done it. It's always had within it that more intellectual, philosophical set of debates around the the kind of ethics of science and and cloning that's there about, you know, I, I think to paraphrase Goldman, just just because you could do it doesn't mean you should. Mm. And I think that's one of the kind of strengths of Jurassic Park. And, and again, this has come through in some of the fan survey research that I've done is that those, you know, as people get older, those are the elements that kind of resonate with them. Um, you know, yes, obviously the kind of spectacular of the dinosaurs and seeing people get eaten uh, provide ongoing um pleasures if that's the right word in terms of things but certainly that more philosophical dimension about you know well should we be bringing these creatures back do we do we have a responsibility to look after them um and you know what controls do there need to be on on science and and that's not with you know falling into the kind of anti-science brigade that's there although i dare say some of those people use that as an example of um that to support their particular positions but certainly that idea about kind of questioning and holding progress to account and yeah yeah. which i think in some ways is lost a little bit in some of the jurassic world movies where it's it's become just a bit more i mean what's it the example i've used before is a bit like the the genetic engineer is in in south park where it's oh look we've spliced together this and this and we've made this and Wow. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there was a recent article about a very serious attempt to revive um, an Australian animal, the thylacine, or the Tasmanian tiger, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of underway. And um, uh, even within the article, which I think was in the Washington Post, I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes, uh, there was a, you know, the scientist said, look, everyone asks us about Jurassic Park. And then I went and found the thing on, on Twitter, the article, to, to retweet it. And, uh, Every second reply was like, haven't we always already realized this was a bad idea? And there were gifts from Jurassic Park and that, <laughs> and that and everything else. And it's like, we're talking about real science here uh, of an animal that went extinct uh, barely a hundred years ago, um, or, or not even at this point, um, and went extinct largely, you know, at, at human hands. Uh, we're not talking about dinosaurs, <laughs> but, but the... The pop culture has overtaken the, the real science, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and it, it, it's interesting that Jurassic Park continues to provide that touch point for people, people's immediate understanding of the ways to deal with it. Because I think, yeah, I mean, some of the questions that Jurassic Park does ask about, you know, you... the, the potential of bringing back something from fossilised DNA, well, you know, what might that also bring back in terms of... I don't know diseases or um, in terms of introducing a new species into a vastly different ecosystem and habitat that it it, in in comparison to when it originally existed yeah there are those very very deep questions that need to be thought about and how if this is even successful and possible would it be handled uh, quite frankly and yeah, and, th- and then again, you know, for what purposes are you bringing this back? Are you bringing it back to 
be a tourist example uh, or, or, you know, a, a commodity that basically allows people to come and see it and, and to marvel at your um, scientific achievement? Or are you, are you bringing it back for, for other purposes, uh, you know, to be set out in the wild and possibly breed again? And, you know, as with Jurassic World, really, what, what might be some of the consequences of that um, happening? There's... Science fiction, you know, has a really, a really great pedigree of of guiding society to think about questions that perhaps we're not ready to think about, but actually we should be, we should be addressing uh, in in serious ways. Um, And I think, you know, Crichton in particular was, uh, was really um, well equipped. He was really well practiced at asking those questions throughout a lot of his work. And that was very strong in, in Jurassic Park. And Ian Malcolm really was his voice. Uh, for asking those questions in, in Jurassic Park. He was the character that was sort of put into the park for the precise purpose of asking, should we be doing this? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's easy to lose sight of that with, with Malcolm's character because, I mean, uh, circling back again to kind of like the enduring impact of the show, uh, of, of the show, of the movie, sorry. Um, you know, one of the reasons why Jurassic Park continues to endure is, is you know, the memes and the, the gifts that are there, many of which that focus around Ian Malcolm, whether that's, you know, Goldblum being shirtless or um, some of the other lines of dialogue that he he produces um, that are there. But, you know, you you do, you you strip away the Ian Malcolm character from Jeff Goldblum, the the kind of star persona, and you're absolutely right. It's there as this kind of voice of reason. He's set up as this kind of like crazy rock star chaos Chaotician, which you know, in 1993, nobody had ever really heard of, um, or anything. Um, and, you know, was that a, a profession that anybody could go down? But actually, it's it, it's very, very serious questions that yeah. that are asked there, and and you know, they're introduced by him and supported by the other more recognisable scientist characters that are, that are in the movie, and. Yeah, and I mean that's—I mean that's—that's that's the enduring appeal of, of Goldblum's character. One thing we we haven't touched upon, which I think also contributes to the, uh, the movies or the franchises enduring impact, is Laura Dern's Ellie Sattler character. You know, I I, I I I sometimes worry about overstating and making these kind of generalized things, but you know, the fact that the character is not just the love interest or is never really the damsel in distress in fact quite the opposite the love interest aspect of of her role you know it's in the background it's just part of her character it's not central to the story uh, yeah which i think is actually really actually really important because often female characters are there just as the love interest um she's not she's there for you know, entirely legitimate reasons, and 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 she's the first one to stick her hands in the in the dinosaur poop, right? Yeah. Um, she's the she volunteers to to go out after Arnold uh, in the raptor shed, and and there's that great line where um, Hammond tries to say, "Oh no, I should go because I'm a." He goes to say, "Man, and you're a woman," and she's like, "Look, we can discuss sexism in survival situations when I get back." She just is not going to take that nonsense, right? Ellie is yeah. like, "No, bitch, I am not. I am not <laughs> taking this. <laughs> Do not give me this right now. Like, people are dying." <laughs> Absolutely, and it's sad that that gets kind of overlooked because, yeah, the you know that kind of character type that. If you want to use the term the strong female heroine, but the character, yeah, you know, Ripley in Alien and, and Sarah Connor in, in the Terminator series were 
immediate touch points with that but especially at the time in, in blockbuster cinema of the early 90s and i might be wrong but i'm i'm happy to be corrected about it but i don't really think there was another character like no, ellie sattler no. um and, and after that as well you know if you look at some of the the blockbusters of the mid to late 90s you didn't that character type didn't wasn't reproduced in the way or I, again I, I might well, well be wrong and I'm happy to be, be corrected so bold, about it it was only reproduced in Jurassic Park so there was Ellie and then you got the follow up of Sarah Harding in The Lost World and, and she mm. was equally as competent equally as strong and uh, I, I wrote a blog post recently which is on the, the Fossils and Fiction website where I argued that um Actually, the, the makers of The Lost World did her a disservice because while Ellie really came to the fore in, in Jurassic Park, the film, in The Lost World book, uh, Crichton actually packed Sarah Harding with so many badass skills. She was just... She, she was riding a motorbike, chasing down this velociraptor uh, and, and instructing Kelly, Malcolm's daughter, to how to shoot the raptor at the same time. Uh it, it, during the T-Rex attack on the trailer, she was uh, Malcolm was totally comatose, like he was done for, and she climbed up the trailer carrying him, up the outside of the trailer carrying him, rather than that sort of dramatic scene you get where the trailer falls down around them in the film. She she actually climbed this thing. Uh, it was mm. it was you know in the book she was so strong and so powerful. Uh, I actually think all credit to Julianne Moore. She she played. Uh, Harding fantastically, but uh, the, the the film Harding was nothing like the book Harding. She yeah. was just not. She was not on the same level. So, and um, and I had another piece here to keep harping my own chain, <laughs> harping my own chain. That's not a word. Uh, a phrase, um, it's uh, it's it's too late at night. Um, uh, I had another piece published in the conversation today as we're recording this, um, talking about the strength of. Claire Deering is a character as well, you know, she was really heavily criticised for the heels and the costuming and everything else, mm. but over the course of that film, she took charge, you know, she was in charge of the park, second basically only to, to, to Masrani, and once he crashed his helicopter, she, she took charge, you know, and even right at the end, she said to, uh, she said to Larry, let the T-Rex out, I've got, <laughs> I've got a plan here, let the T-Rex out, and, yep. and that was what finished off the Indominus, you know. Um, that was yeah. a boss move. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I think, and as well, I, I think Fallen Kingdom tried to do a lot to kind of reclaim Claire. And I think I, I wouldn't be surprised if um, Dominion also continues down that she, line. Um, in Dominion, in the trailers that we've seen so far, she is the most sort of under threat, I noticed, in writing this mm. conversation piece. There are. There are three scenes in that first trailer where Claire is face-to-face with, with a dinosaur. She, she's face-to-face with an Atrociraptor. She's face-to-face with a Dilophosaurus, quite literally, yeah. in the case yeah. of the Dilophosaurus. And then she's sort of crawling through the swamp to get away from the Therizinosaurus, you know. She's, yeah. she's actually right there amongst the action. And um, uh, it's it's a pretty extraordinary continuation of these um, really badass female characters, I think. And then we get Kayla Watts, who's this, like, wild pilot. So you can tell I'm excited for this film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and it's nice to also... It'd be nice to see... How uh, was it? The Zia Holland character back as well. 
Um, yep. Hopefully in, in a bit more of an elevated role rather than just a kind of traditional feminized caring role. Yeah, she's, which she's been kept out a little bit. Uh, Zia, the, uh, the veterinarian, is that what you're yeah. referring to? Yeah. yeah. Um, Delia, Daniela Pineda. Uh, That's it. Actress. Yeah. Uh, no, is that, that, you're exactly right. Zia, you know, came to the fore in, um, in sort of caring for a T-Rex, right? <laughs> yeah. After a T-Rex as a vet. Uh, you know, vet vet to a T-Rex is, a, is an extraordinary <laughs> profession as well. So. <laughs> Jurassic, uh, it, it has a lot to say about um, all of these social issues, I think, and, uh, and it does it really well. So It does, yeah. It's, I mean, that, that's another thing as, as well about the impact and the endurance of, of the first film, especially, is that it's a really good film. I mean, good is a loaded term in a variety of ways um but it holds up and it continues to hold up in a variety of of different ways it doesn't feel like a movie that came out almost 30 years ago um you know there's still as resonant today or i would certainly say it's still as resonant today in some in terms of some of the themes that it deals with um as it was when it came out in 1993 and and for something that was written off as like a kind of popcorn blockbuster theme park ride of a movie well I think those people should go away and reevaluate what they said about it then um, because yeah it is for me it, it, it is a masterpiece and it is one of the greatest films of the last 30 years possibly probably even more than that probably even ever I would say so yeah I, I almost just want to end it there but I want to give you an opportunity <laughs> to have a chat about your new book which is coming soon I believe You're, you have an edited book coming out yeah um, it, it's not mine I'm, I'm not the editor of it it's been edited by uh, a guy called Matt Melia who is a um, academic at the at Kingston University in the UK um, and so I've got a chapter within it which is about um, it, it's called Jurassic Park and slash as dinosaur fandom and it, it, certainly a lot of the, the comments um, and observations that I've, I've kind of referenced throughout this podcast um, are alluded to within in there as well um, it, it, it starts off from trying to explore you know how significant dinosaurs are to people who identify as Jurassic Park fans. Um, but it also just tries to do some kind of basic groundwork about it because in comparison to the other big, high-profile, high box office, you know, um, franchises like Star Wars, Star Trek, Harry Potter, there's not really, or there's comparatively less work, if any, about Jurassic Park fans. So it starts off by doing some, it's based around survey responses um and it identifies some of the kind of demographic issues around who we are jurassic park fans um identifying that you know they're predominantly white um predominantly western in the sample that i um constructed um but one of the 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 interesting things about it is that there's just as many female jurassic park fans as there are male um, which is quite a, a different assumption to a lot of the literature, a lot of the assumptions that are made about people who are, who are adults and are dinosaur fans. In that, it, it, it's very much associated with stereotypes of stunted male masculinity and growth. And haven't you kind of grown up out out of this? But yeah, there, there's equally as many um, 
female fans as male fans in Jurassic Park. And there's certainly equally when our people are asked to list the aspects of the franchise that they enjoyed, um, there were as many uh, female respondents who said, or women who said, uh, dinosaurs were a, a, of interest to them as there were men. And that's before you know getting into some of the more the deeper findings of the chapter where um, we find out that you know the way the dinosaurs kind of all the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park become um, locuses for people's ongoing attachments to Jurassic Park their their emotional attachments to it and and you know some of the feelings that that can that the dinosaurs can inspire uh, nostalgia being one of those things but not necessarily nostalgia for the Mesozoic period which nobody lived in or nostalgia for dinosaurs which are you know not necessarily kind of big cute creatures and objects and nostalgia that we might traditionally associate with but a lot of the time it's nostalgia for the memories and the identities of the people um, that they were at that particular time or when they first watched the movies and yeah cool I'll, uh, I'll look forward to chapter and uh, let us know when it's out and I'll make sure we, we share it on the fossils and fiction socials as well so. thank you thank you yeah it, I, I will do um. Dr. Ross Gunner, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation um, if people want to look you up on Twitter or look up your work anywhere and find out more where can they do that uh, my Twitter handle is at drrpg underscore tv um, you can find me there. Um, my website is um, if if you if you Google Ross Garner Cardiff, um, the uh, departmental website page for me will come up, and you can find a list of publications that are there. Um, my email address is uh, GarnerRP1 at Cardiff.ac.uk. So if anybody would like to drop me an email, um, I'll be happy to to chat with you. Fantastic! Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Ross Garner from Cardiff University for that fantastic discussion. If you'd like to be included in a future episode of Fossils and Fiction, you can send a voice file to us via our Anchor profile or simply send us a link to your recorded voice message via any of the social media channels. If you'd like to guest star or interview on one of the episodes, simply get in touch via social media. Thank you for listening to the Fossils and Fiction podcast, produced by me, Travis Holland, with the support of Charles Sturt University. The podcast theme music is Sonora by Quincas Morea via the YouTube audio library. Find more content on our social media channels, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Show notes are available on the website fossilsfiction.co. You can subscribe to the podcast on all major podcasting platforms.